on this first season of Obscene. I speak to a team of credentialed experts to discuss how past and current domestic policy have allowed racism and misogyny to flourish. These next few clips are just a few samples of the conversations we'll have this season. I do think a lot about hierarchies because it's something that is a big part of science. Hierarchy um, is something that we've accepted as being useful in science, right? So when you apply this to society, I mean, hierarchy has been needed by the, um, by the ruling class basically to, to, to assign labor and task and power in society, right? And so hierarchy was used that way. And so, yes, I do agree that um, hierarchical structure in society is discriminatory, and that I, I personally don't believe any individual is of more value than another. So we have definitely uh, discussed poverty in a way that places the blame on the individual and criminalizes their state of, um, of economic well-being rather than examine the forces that have led to some people living in poverty or some populations having a higher risk of living in poverty compared to others. Masculinity studies is the is looking at masculinity from a cultural standpoint with a I guess a feminist lens. It's the way I teach it and the way I look at it. But it's one of the the I think most fascinating parts of liberal arts when we're able to examine the role of masculinity from a a historical perspective, a cultural perspective, all chronological to look at all those different pieces, the intersectionality of that, uh, the pieces of racism, colorism, how those all intertwine. Uh, but specifically looking at that from the role of masculinity, not necessarily from the role of men, though that often is what we mean when we say masculinity, but what does healthy masculinity look like for a trans person? What does healthy masculinity look like for a cis female? Uh, what did healthy masculinity look like for someone 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago versus today? So it's a fantastic exploration of just one part of the the human experience. One of the anti-racism center's first project is it's actually going to focus on black maternal health and infant mortality um, here in Washington, D.C. And what the health team hopes to provide is like insight into the maternal health issues that are facing black women and use this information to provide support and make policy recommendations that will improve, you know, these health outcomes. Well, I think a couple of things. I will say one of the most dangerous things that I think has happened um, in the last two years is the development of the religious freedom arm of the Health Department of Health and Human Services. The idea that the United States Department of Health and Human Services is implementing policies that allow doctors to discriminate against transgender people, LGBT people, women who are seeking, you know, reproductive health services, uh, women who are miscarrying. Uh, There's a whole host of dangerous, dangerous, dangerous policies that are being uh, and rules that are being written by the Department of Human Services under the guise of religious freedom and religious autonomy. Again, actuaries have determined that because women are forced to miss work more because they don't necessarily have the same um, employment guarantees as men. So if they have a disability and they have to miss work, they then need to file more disability claims through their private insurance rather than through something associated with work. And so 
for women with disabilities, it still costs more often to get disability insurance, even with the ACA. And again, we need to be looking at what happens if um, the ACA is repealed. Now begins the first season of Obscene, Episode 1, Pandora to Yoko, Mythology and Contempt. When sorrows come, they come not single spies, but in battalions. Hamlet, Act 4, Scene 5. Well, it, we just can't find her, and it's frightening, really. And uh, what the immigration is asking me to do, really, is to take a decision on whether choosing my hus- husband or my child. That was Yoko Ono in 1971 speaking in front of a small group of reporters. She was in the middle of a stressful custody battle with her ex-husband, facing possible deportation due to drug charges leveled against her current husband, and to make matters exponentially worse, she was solely being blamed by the world for breaking up the most successful musical group up until that point, the Beatles. This story was a seemingly new incarnation of the Pandora myth, who was a tempting goddess sent as a punishment to men to bring them harm. This was the mythology ascribed to Yoko that would follow her for decades. Her name was used as the butt of a joke. When a woman seemed to come in between two good male friends, she was called a Yoko. Many people ignored how racism was intertwined with misogyny in the mythology of Yoko. Yoko was thought of not just as someone who broke up a beloved band, but a homewrecker, a gold digger, and a social climber. This myth would for many years erase Yoko's own life and accomplishments. Before John Lennon collided with Yoko's life, she was already an accomplished and ambitious artist in her own right, both in the visual and performing arts. She had begun piano lessons at the age of four. She was the first woman accepted into the philosophy program at the Gakushuin University in Japan. She became an integral part of the New York downtown art scene in the early 1960s. And while she was from a well-off family, during the Great Fire bombing of 1945 in Tokyo during World War II, which killed more than 100,000 people, it left Yoko's family temporarily homeless and begging for food, forever informing her work as a peace activist. Yet all of those aspects were ignored and replaced with the type of mythology that creates disdain and contempt for women. The kind that erases a woman, reducing her to a punchline or a stereotype. This, of course, is not new, but let me just say this. These myths are only allowed to flourish because they first take root as policy. To quote Jack Holland, author of A Brief History of Misogyny, some of the most fearsome misogynistic laws ever codified started during the Greco-Roman period. And so that's where I'll start this podcast, with mythology, racism, and misogyny, and how the intersections of those grew out of policy, and continued to do so. As policy is discussed throughout this first season, you will see that misogyny, racism, anti-Semitism, ableism, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, misogynar, ageism, and xenophobia rarely arrive as single spies, but rather in battalion. In other words, one prejudice rarely stands alone as they are entangled together. 
often allowed to breathe in between the lines of our own policies. Mythology is story. Throughout the centuries, mythology was utilized to explain the unexplainable. Like what happens to us after we die? Why does the sun exist? And where did corn come from? Mythology exists in every culture, and those stories can give one a sense of magic and wonderment. But they can also be frightening. As a black and Latina girl growing up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I heard the story of La Llorona, the weeping woman who lost her children in a flood at night, and so she looked for other children after dusk, near floods, to replace her own, warning us small children to stay indoors at night and away from flash floods. Myths like this can be taken as an instructional guidebook of do's and don'ts. These stories tend to have staying power because they're often repeated handed down through generations, and become deeply embedded in our culture. America has many destructive myths, like the welfare queen, a myth created to denigrate and dehumanize black women while creating a false narrative around social assistance programs. The myth of the self-made man. The idea that any American can have a singular success without any aid from anyone. How would one do this? Are they not driving on roads paid from infrastructure policy? Did they not attend public schools paid for by tax dollars? Are they not breathing clean air protected by the EPA? As we all know, Trump has been a direct beneficiary of this myth. But today, I'm going to talk about a few Greco-Roman myths, purposely crafted to be oppressive and detrimental, and how they've managed to be repurposed and repackaged for each new millennia because they've been so effective in their purpose to oppress and to marginalize. In a moment, we'll start with Ovid's Pygmalion. It's a story about a sculptor who carved a woman out of ivory and fell in love with its image. My guest, Eric Garrison, will briefly tell us the story, but first, a little about Eric. He's the co-chair of Equality WM at the College of William & Mary, which improves the learning and working environment at the college for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgendered faculty, staff, and students through representation, action, and community. Eric founded Robin, the Richmond Bi Network, started the first gay-straight alliance in a Virginia public high school, and lectured Oxford University medical students in how to take LGBT-informed sexual histories from patients. Eric also taught the college's first course in masculinity studies and is currently chairing the Virginia Campus Task Force to Prevent Sexual Assault. Here is Eric discussing Ovid's Pygmalion. 
I mean, if you go back to the original, you know, uh, like Ovid, you know, to the original, that's where you start to, I mean, it goes way, way back. You know, that whole piece of, uh, look at Metamorphosis Book 10. That was where Ovid, you know, mentioned Pygmalion, you know, which is where Shaw got the inspiration and eventually we wound up with a musical. But you know, that whole piece of let's create a woman in our image. And that's what, you know, Pygmalion falls in love with. The The myth of Pygmalion was known throughout the, the Greco-Roman, you know, empires. But, you know, we have a written account of that in, in Ovid's Metamorphosis, and I do think it's book 10. been so long since I've studied Latin. But, you know, here we have Pygmalion, you know, creating a, a, a statue. So not just um, – so it's the physical form. So now we have men who are able to control the, 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 the appearance of, of a, a female form. And if you think about the the Greeks and Romans, they had you know specific formula for how bodies should be. No one could ever attain those. Although I know many bodybuilders today who will use Greco-Roman measurements to try to attain symmetry. But anyway, so here we have a sculptor creating, like almost like um, Geppetto creating Pinocchio. Um, so creating a form that is the ideal uh, female, you know, and uh, doing all these things physically. Um, to a, a lifeless, mindless, dare I say, brainless form, and then that's the form that comes to life, and that's that's the that's the 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 piece that the, the sculptor falls in love with. They they fall in love with the form that they created. It gives you know Pygmalion the power of a god. So you know if we read in certain religions that a god or gods created people in, in their image. Now you have a, a sculptor creating something in their image of what they imagine uh, a female should look like, and that's what this you know sculptor falls in love with is this this statue this this thing that that does become real. And from that, you know, we we did get you know Pygmalion by Shaw. We got um, you know that's where the whole thing of Eliza Doolittle and you know so all those pieces they they all go back. But it goes back to that that part and perhaps even Pinocchio. I never thought about that till I mentioned it. But how do we have someone create this ideal thing? Um, but again, it's it's this life from lifeness, lifelessness. So we've got life from lifelessness here, where you know it's not that. You know, Pygmalion takes a um, a wax tablet and a and a stylus and starts drafting all the qualities that he thinks would be great that a woman should have. Not that that would be any better, but you know, these are not um, human traits; these are physical traits that are created, and then eventually, you know, that becomes the the creature um, in which he falls in love. And I, I've seen I've seen that carried out actually, Maya, in in male dominant societies, and sometimes. Uh, always, I should say sometimes, always an abuse of power when someone says, I need you to wear that dress, or you look too fat, or um, where a man might marry a, a brunette and says, I don't like brunettes, I only like blondes, you need to dye your hair. It also comes from self-hatred where someone might say, I need to create myself in their image. You know, I look at the makeup, the, the billion dollar makeup industry or plastic surgery, or these things where, um, you know, I have to do this in order to be attractive to another sex or gender. Those are, you know, pieces of Pygmalion that are exercised today that are self-imposed. And I think that's just as harmful. It's one when the sculptor defines what the sculpture should look like. It's another thing when the sculpture actually says, I agree with that. You know, if you look at your mythology from, from back then, there are lots of crossovers that take place to the sense where you can start to see 
you know, Sumerian or, or Grecian or Roman mythology, you know, weave itself into Christian culture to make Christian culture much more palatable. And those myths are, are so common, they're so pervasive, and they're just as harmful now as they were back then. As Eric demonstrated, the Pygmalion myth has been around for centuries and has been reinterpreted several times to fit a current century or decade while keeping its central theme. Women are mutable and need to be molded into the image deemed palatable. Greek mythology was a veritable poo-poo platter of misogynistic female archetypes predicated on the idea that men were once happily alone in the universe, free from disease and death, before these men slightly irritated the gods who then punished these men with a last-minute, last-thought creation. Women. So, to be clear, in Greek mythology, men are existing in a world totally without women. That may be what congressional Republicans think the definition of reproductive justice is, but I digress. When women finally do come into the picture, they're unruly creatures needing to come to heal. One of the most well-known troublemakers is Pandora, who, like her biblical counterpart Eve, was blamed for inflicting eternal pain, suffering, and sin upon all mankind because she couldn't follow a simple instruction. Don't open that box. Many of these Greek myths acted as instructional guides to follow in case your woman got a little mouthy or power-hungry. These mythologies would help men dehumanize and denigrate and devalue women just so they knew their place, which apparently was quiet, at home, making babies. Boys only, please. In Greek mythology, women started to fall into categories. Hot, young, and ditzy, like the goddess of love Aphrodite. Chase, obedient virgins, like Lucretta, who ends up killing herself after she's raped, and not because of her self-agony, but because she feels that she's brought shame to her husband and her father. And then there are the old ladies, called the Grey, who seem to all meld together, and they share one tooth and one eye, and all their hair is gray. So if you're not a tempting hot virgin, you're old, sharing a tooth with a, another old woman. See, the Grey myth is an example of what Greco-Roman and then Western societies think of older women. They're just this big, unattractive, and invisible lump that need to stay hidden. After all, these women were painted only as useful during their childbearing years and only if they were quiet. These myths have staying power because they were reinforced by some of the most powerful philosophers and scientists of the day, Plato and Aristotle, two men that are still regularly quoted in Western philosophy. I wish I could have a conversation with Aristotle and ask him what he was really thinking when it came to women. You know what? Someone gave me an old phone number to reach him. Should I try it out and see if it works? Why not? Go for Stottle. Hello, Aristotle. It's Maya Contreras with the podcast Obscene. May I ask you a few quick questions? I only have a moment. You see, I've just cut open an eel, and upon discovering no reproductive material, I've concluded they spontaneously generate from mud. <laughs> Isn't that exciting? That's been disproven. Really? I just wanted to ask quickly what your thoughts were about women. They have fewer teeth than men, and the fact that women don't go bald proves their childlike nature. That's not even a little true. The male is by nature superior, and the female inferior. The male ruler, and the female 
female subject. So you believe that women are inferior to men. Yes, you see, the relationship of male to female is by nature a relation of superior to inferior, ruler to ruled. But don't feel bad because, you see, women rank just a bit higher than slaves. No group ranks higher than another group. The slave is wholly lacking the deliberative element. The female has it, but it lacks authority. The child has it, but it's incomplete. I can't believe you've been so influential for so long. Anything a woman can do, a man can do better. No, they can't. Yes, they can. No, they can't. Yes, they can't. No, they can't. No, they can't. No, they can't. For centuries, some of Aristotle's ideas of hierarchical structure reinforced racism and misogyny, both philosophically and scientifically. So I asked my friend and former bandmate, scientist Dr. Hazel Levy, research professor of pediatrics at the University of Florida's College of Medicine, why Aristotle would still be so influential in this day and age. Early, like very early in your career, perhaps even in high school, when you were kind of forming ideas... Um, about science, because I know for myself, even when I was doing performance, that Aristotle was brought up a lot. And then it wasn't until I got into college that I said, oh, God. What's up with this guy? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Why this guy? Yeah. Um, did you have, did you run into um, Aristotle and Plato's uh, work um, early on? And um, why do you think they were influential for so long? Um, even though they had some really messed up ideas. Yes. Well, so, I mean, I think one of the reasons that, um, Aristotle and Plato's work are, and were discussed for so long is that they also created things like libraries, right? Didn't Aristotle create like a lyceum or something where his work was, 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 um, archived. So I think that the, and that they wrote so much, they were such prolific writers and that they were ingrained in the education system. And so I think that, and I study the education system. That's something I also pay attention to. And so I do believe that societies, that, that the education system and, and the society are interrelated and influence each other. Right. And so I mm-hmm. think that they just made a, made a point of setting up an infrastructure that would keep their ideas around. Mm. So that's one thing. But also, I mean, Aristotle is given credit for kind of helping to develop the ideas of like methodical research, you know, Mm -hmm. empirical research, like having a method to answer questions and not just relying on, um, philosophies you develop based on your experiences and feelings, creating a model and testing it. Right. And so scientific style, um, this notion of classifying things, Aristotle's that stuff still exists. Right. Even though right. even though some of his ideas have been debunked or, uh, you know, or um, new schools of thought have taken over their places. He's it's just it's just such a good example of how history persists, especially when individuals make it create structures to archive and keep the history as they tell it. What does um, biology is not destiny mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I I certainly agree with the phrase that biology is not destiny in that um, defining 
people and their potential and aligning that with their biological characteristics, I, I mm-hmm. think is not, it's not scientific. It's, it's arbitrary because ranking things as being of higher value or lower value is often arbitrary and it's done to, um, to uplift the group of people that are creating these hierarchies, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's, it's not scientific, it's social, right? And even our destinies, if you will, I, I have a, I struggle with destiny because, you know, there's work that I can do to change my life. And then there's social pressures that are going to limit what I can do, you know? And so, uh, I, I don't know that I really believe in destiny right. in general. That right. doesn't seem like something when I hear the word, I don't really believe in it in general, but, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't think it's, let me back up and say, there are these sort of notions or this dogma that we believe in society that we just say, for example, I could say something like, it's awful that this person was abusing women, but isn't it more awful that this other person was abusing children. Like somehow we can all like, there's some weird thing, but it's like, really both are equally awful, but Mm -hmm. why do we kind of play through when someone throws something like that out, you know? And so I, I, I feel like in society, we have a lot of unsubstantiated rationale, if you will, for placing hierarchy, ranking people and their value. And none of it's based on science. All of it's based on, the people that create these hierarchies wanting to benefit from exclusion. I want to repeat something Dr. Levy said in the interview about Plato and Aristotle. They made it a point to set up an infrastructure to keep their ideas around. That is such an important aspect in all of this. We must examine the infrastructure that has kept misogynistic and racist ideas in place and find a way to dismantle them through policy. I say policy because through policy there can be accountability. To quote Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, a former colleague of Dr. Hazel Levy's, and now the founder of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University, education, love, and exemplary Black people will not deliver America from racism. Racist ideas grow out of discriminatory policies, not the other way around. In conclusion, we've seen how some myths and archetypes of the past still continue to be very influential because they're handed down through generations and retold to fit that century or decade. Many of these myths are based on fear. The fear of what women and marginalized groups might do if they were protected by policy that deemed us all equal. Many of these policies passed down are meant to denigrate and suppress women and marginalized groups to make sure hierarchies are kept. We should also examine new myths and desired infrastructure to see if true inclusivity and equality is at its center. For example, let's look at the phrase often used in the name of equality. 
down with the patriarchy, up with the matriarchy. While white cis men undoubtedly hold a disproportionate amount of power across the board in our patriarchal society, where would black women, indigenous women, disabled women, Jewish women, Asian women, trans women rank in that new matriarchy? Right now, Asian women only make 87 cents to the dollar. White women, 79 cents. Black women, 63 cents. Indigenous women, 57 cents. Hispanic women, 54 cents. Black women with a college degree age 60 or older have a median wealth of $11,000, while white women that fit that same demographic have a median wealth of $384,400. Just in case you didn't get to do the math on that, that's a $373,400 difference. Insanity. So I vote no on hierarchies, and we have so much corrective work to do. And some of that work is dismantling or analyzing the stories we're telling and telling ourselves. The myth that Yoko Ono was solely responsible for breaking up the Beatles, or the myth of Ariana Grande splitting with her exes caused them to spiral, can be traced back to the Samson and Delilah myth where Delilah cut Samson's hair, causing him to lose all his power. I mean, what kind of bullshit is that? We should all take a moment of great pause and think about the narratives being told to us or the narratives we're telling ourselves. We need to see which ones are causing us harm or which ones are meant as a warning. For example, the myth of Cassandra. Cassandra was a woman cursed to profess prophecies that were true, but no one believed her. Sound familiar? Mr. Chairman, Senator Thurman, members of the committee, my name is Anita F. Hill, and I am a professor of law at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, Thank you, uh, Chairman Grassley and Ranking Member Feinstein, members of the committee. My name is Christine Blasey Ford. I am a professor of psychology at Palo Alto University and a research psychologist at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Nuclear warheads, and she's playing chicken. Look, from everything I see, has no respect for this person. Well, that's because he'd rather have a puppet as president of no the United puppet, States. No puppet. And it's pretty clear. You're the puppet. It's pretty clear you won't admit no, that the, the Russians have engaged in cyber attacks against the United States of America, that you encouraged espionage against our people, that you are willing to spout the Putin line, sign up for his wish list, break up NATO, do whatever he wants to do, and that you continue to get help from him because he has a very clear favorite in this race. So I think that this is such an unprecedented uh, situation. We've never had a foreign government trying to interfere in our election. We have 17, 17 intelligence agencies, civilian and military, who have all concluded that these espionage attacks, these cyber attacks come from the highest levels of the Kremlin, and they are designed to influence our election. I find that deeply disturbing. Next week on Obscene.
have you ever heard of the Comprehensive Child Development Act of 1971? I don't know if I've specifically heard of that Comprehensive Child Development Act of 1971. No. I have not. No, I have not heard of it. Uh, Not by that name. No, I don't think I've heard of that act. No, I've never heard of the Comprehensive Child Care Act of 1971. (laughs) Next week on Obscene, we'll take a look at a piece of policy that could have lifted hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people out of poverty, but was vetoed at the very last minute by Nixon. And I'll talk about the misogynistic reasons why. I'm Maya Contreras. Thanks for listening. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.